Well, Merry Christmas, y'all. <clears throat> I hope you guys are doing well. I'm excited to, uh, to share with you God's Word this morning. I hope you're, you're excited to hear it. Um, as we're talking about searching for Christmas, I have some uh, in the back. I've, I'm, about to sw- I'm about to just be aware. I'm about to switch this, the slides. Now, they're timed, and there's going to be background music. So it, it may be really loud. I don't know. I, I didn't actually check. So um, hopefully it doesn't blast you guys out of your seats. But here's what's about to happen. Um, as we go into the Christmas season, if you're anything like me and our household, it is a, it is a busy time of year. And that's great, right? Uh, there's shopping to do. Uh, there's food to cook. Uh, there's food to eat. There's people to visit. There's places to go. Um, there's there's other things to do. You know, if you got if you got kids or grandkids or just family or traveling and all this kind of stuff. And just looking around, you, you know, there's there's folks that aren't here that are normally here because I know that they're out of town or you're getting ready for vacation and all all, all those different kinds of things, right? Uh, but my point of this is, as we are looking forward to Christmas, it's often the case that that the main thing Jesus can often get lost. We can get so focused on everything else that we lose sight of the main thing. So, to, illustri- to illustrate that point, I have five Christmas movies that you're about to see. There's a single slide, so there's just a screenshot of that Christmas movie. You have seven seconds to, to think about what it, what it is, okay? So it's going to be timed you have second seconds. Please, please do not say it out loud. Just take mental note, and then we're going to go through, and we're going to just see how many of us got what right. Does this make sense? Okay, you ready? Seven seconds per slide, and they're going to make sure the audio is not incredibly loud. Ready? You can turn it up some, though. Let's, let's go back. Is there no audio? Okay, you ready? So, these were all scenes from different movies, Christmas movies, with some of the main characters or the people out of them, so you had the guests just based on the scene, right? Now, like it or not, now I'm not saying all these Christmas movies are great Christmas movies, but they are all technically Christmas movies, okay? So, here's the first one. Did you guess this? This is, and you can just say yes or no, or just in your mind have satisfaction. This is the nightmare before Christmas. Yeah, I heard somebody say it. So if you guessed that, you guessed right. Um, So this is like one of those double-dipping movies that Hollywood tried to do. It's a Halloween movie as well as a Christmas movie. They're just trying to like double up, bang for their buck, right? Here's another one. So this is a Christmas movie. It's called A Christmas Carol. And this is the one with the animated, you know, Jim Carrey through this one, right? Now, I know some of you are going to argue me with this, but you're wrong. This is a Christmas movie. 
okay? And uh, you may or may not know, but this is Die Hard, right? Yes, okay. That's, that's technically, it's a Christmas movie, right? Um, here's another one. I'm sure you probably all got this one. What Christmas movie is this? Elf. Yes, you're right, you're right. And then last but not least, and I wish that my youngest son Enoch was up for this one. Uh, he had, he, we, we just celebrated his birthday uh, a little early, just this last Saturday, and it was, it was a Grinch theme birthday party. He absolutely loves the Grinch. Um, it's very heartwarming because Grinch, you know, it's, it's, it's not a Christian movie, although they do sing, you know, some Christian songs in this. And it's, it's almost as if one would imagine that, G, the, uh, that uh, the Grinch found Christ, maybe, and that's why his heart changed. And, and of course, you know, they would never say this in those kind of movies. But so those are the movies. How did you do? Did anybody get every single one right? Did you? All right. So we've got a few, we've got a, a few movie buffs. So note to self, note to self, if you're ever playing like a movie trivia game or a pop culture, you may want like Rachel on your team, okay? So, so search her out. She, she may have, have the answer for you. But, but listen, so in, in all seriousness, if you can find your way to the book of Matthew, uh, that's where I want to bring you. Now, I would like to read with you. So if you have a copy of God's Word and you're turning to Matthew, uh, we're going to be in chapter 1 of Matthew. And I'm going to read with you verses 18 through 25. And then I want to spend our time this morning really picking apart, diving deeper into Matthew 1, 21. And of course, the title of today's sermon, if you're looking for it later, or if you want to share it with somebody, is, is called The Name. And again, my point with this is that uh, we can often get so focused on everything else around the holiday that we often lose sight of the most important person in the holiday. And so hopefully you found your way to Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 18 through 25. I will read with you. You can follow along in your copy of God's word if you so choose. This is what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we gather together. Uh, As we talked about uh, last week, it is by him that we are held together. And so we thank you for our time together. We ask that as we, we look at this, that we would have a deeper respect and awe, possibly, but at very least, Lord, that we would have a good reminder about this precious name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, our Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. 
So, as I said, I want to focus on Matthew 1, 21. So, uh, this scripture will be up here right now so that you can find your way to it. Or if you have a copy of God's Word, just keep your finger there. Uh, we're going to continuously go back to that. But Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, in this text, there's, there's three, if you're a note taker, there's three, like, main points that I want to talk to you about. And then on each of those, I, I have three sub points. So if you're a note taker, that's how this is going to unfold. So you can be prepared for that. You ready? So the first thing I wanted to talk about with you this morning is you and your sin. And the first part of the text says, she will bear a son. Now that matters there because of what happened in Genesis. And so the first subpoint of you and your sin is, is really the start of sin. We need to understand where that came from. So the start of sin, we see that in Genesis 3, verse 6, sin entered into the world. Now that is the text where it talks about that Adam and Eve ate of this fruit of this tree of which they were commanded not to, and then their eyes were opened. And before this, the temptation was is that God wouldn't destroy them. In fact, they would become like God, and so they were, they were deceived, and they willfully disobeyed. And some of you might say, well, that's not, it's not fair for me to be punished for my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, you know, so long ago. How is, how is that fair? Well, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, here it is, because all sinned. And so actually we're not innocent. So the start of sin may have happened in the garden, but it is a nature that all of us have inherited. And scripture is very clear that it tells us that we need a atoning sacrifice. So this is about you and your sin, not just Adam and his sin or them and their sin or her and her sin or him and his sin. It's for you and your sin. This is the start of sin. Happens in our own hearts. James 1, 14 through 15 tells us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. So the start of sin may have been in the garden, but it continues to our hearts. Kind of like the ancient myth of Pandora, once it was opened, there was no getting it back in the box. And that may have been the start of sin, but that wasn't the end of it. And so this is why she would need to bear a son, because the next part would be the separation of sin. That's what happens when we sin. So that happens, we see firstly in Genesis 3, 24, when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden then, and he set a watchman, he set an angel there with a flaming sword to guard the way in so that no one would go back in and eat of the tree of life and then live forever in this corrupted state. It was a mercy of God to do that, rest assured for that. But the separation of sin is always what happens when we engage in sin. Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, as it is written none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so the separation from sin that we see here is one that happens not only with us and God, but also us with one another. And ultimately, the separation that we have in sin with us and one another and us with God continues 
if left unchecked and unmitigated for all of eternity. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And in that text, that term there, the soul who sins shall die, what it's talking about is this eternal death. Now, some world religions or some heresies will talk about the idea of um, annihilationalism, which is a fancy 50-cent word for just means uh, eventually everything that you are just ceases to be. It's, it's basically, and it's, and it's gone. Scripture doesn't teach that. In fact, what Scripture actually teaches is that we have an eternal state that goes on forever, and that eternal state is either with the Lord through Christ or away from the Lord in hell. And so eternal separation is also on the line when it comes to you and your sin. The start of sin might have been something small in your life, or we attribute it to Adam, but really it's, it's us, and it leads to separation. It leads to separation, like I said, from God and us in this life, from God and us in the life to come, if not mitigated by Christ, and, and from us with one another. But then that leads also then, of course, to the sorrow of sin. Because sin in and of itself, although may be pleasurable for a time, ultimately leads to sorrow. Because the start of sin might seem something enjoyable, it leads to separation, which then leads to sorrow. Genesis 4, 13 was where we first see this. At least uh, I'm going to say that. You, you, could, you could argue that no sorrow actually happened in the same text as above. As soon as Adam and Eve saw themselves and knew themselves to be naked and were ashamed, maybe that was the beginning of sorrow. But in Genesis 4.13, we see a, a very clear picture of this for Cain. Cain kills his brother Abel. Can you imagine the sorrow that that must have caused to Adam and Eve? But then also, Cain himself experienced a sorrow. A sorrow from being separated from God and a sorrow from being separated from his family and his brothers and his sisters and all those who were there. And he was punished by God. And his word says in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 13, this punishment is greater than he can bear in Genesis. That's what he says. Because of the immensity of the sorrow and the guilt and the shame and the ostracization, he is a man of sorrows now. David also wrote about the sorrow of sin in Psalm 31.10. It says, my life is spent with sorrow, my eyes with, oh, I'm sorry, let me start over. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Or in the New Testament under Galatians 6.8, for the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the deceitfulness of sin starts somewhere. It separates us both from God and from one another, and then all it brings is sorrow. Jesus himself tells us that Satan came to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but he came, this son that was born, that we're originally talking about here in Matthew 1, 21, if you have your, if you have your finger there, she will bear a son. This son was to be the fulfillment of this first Adam. This Adam was to succeed where the first Adam failed. And he teaches us that real, true, lasting pleasure and joy can only be found in the Lord. That's why he is a son. He has to be fully God and fully man. He has to be an intermediary. 
He has to be fully both. If he's not fully man, if he's not a son, if he's not flesh and blood, then he cannot relate to us. He cannot atone for us because it has to be a one-for-one swap. And so it is really you and your sin that caused her to bear the son. The start of sin was in Genesis. But Jesus himself said that the finish of sin was on the cross. At least our destruction from it. Separation of sin may have happened in the garden. But fellowship with the Lord happens through the cross. Sorrow for sin is the natural outcome of sin. But scripture says that he took our griefs and our sorrows on himself so that he might bring us fullness of joy. She will bear a son. So the next thing I want to talk about is you and your Savior, because in Matthew 1, 21, it says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That is your Savior. Whether you want him or not, there is no other name on heaven or on earth by which you must be saved. And his name is Jesus. Here's some things about Jesus. Uh, One, he is a consecrated Savior. What do I mean by that? Well, this word consecrated means to be set apart for something, right? Um, It's its own thing. John 10, 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Hebrews 7, 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, there's that word. It's, It's a different kind of word, but it means in essence, the same kind of thing. Innocent, unstained, and then here's another one. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And then I just quoted it, but that's Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is a consecrated Savior. Just like the priest of the Old Testament, he was the only one who could go into the holies of holies to interact with God, to make atonement for the sin of the people of Israel. And he was the only one who was allowed to do that. He was set apart. He had to be washed and purified and cleaned. He had to have special garments. He was to do it in a special way. And if he did it outside of that way, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be done. And in fact, that high priest would be killed and they would have to drag him out by the rope attached to his ankle. I don't know if you know anything about Jewish history. You've probably heard me say that before. And just like he is consecrated in himself, he has consecrated the way to the Father, which is through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that is exclusive. But he's also a concerned Savior. So he's not just set apart and unapproachable, but he is concerned about you and me on an individual, personal level. Matthew 9.36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again in Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Or, maybe when I said this originally, your mind went to this verse, Revelation 21.4, 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Or, the most famous verse in all of the Bible is what? John 3.16. For he so loved the world. That is concern. It doesn't get any more concerning than that. Jesus says that it is the best thing to do to lay down your life for your beloved, right? This is what Jesus has done. So not only do we have a consecrated Savior, the only way to come to the Lord, the only man, God, the Jesus, born a son, but we also have his name is Jesus, the name above all names. The, num, the name by which every knee will one day bow. And he is a consecrated Savior. He is a concerned Savior. But he's also a cleansing Savior. That was his desire. In 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, these aren't necessarily dealing with sin, although they're illustrations of that, but in the gospel we have a couple stories too, like in Mark 1, 40 through 41, and the leper came to him imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, there it is again, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And in Matthew twenty-three twenty-six, he's chastening the Pharisees, saying, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may be clean also. David understood this when he prayed in Psalm 51, verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, we need this Savior. We need to call on the name of Jesus. He is consecrated and he is concerned, but he is cleansing. Only through him are we made new. Only through him do we have righteousness. Only through him are our sins forgiven and what I cannot fathom and I will spend all of eternity praising him for is that it is his desire to do so on my behalf and yours. That he wants to take your sin from you. He wants to make you new. He wants to make you clean. That's our savior. And so how can we be saved if we don't know his name? And I want to ask you, this Christmas season, is he first in your heart? Or are we, and do we, so often get so focused on all the rest of the things that we lose the main character? We know the story, we've seen the film, but we pay so much attention to the other things that we lose sight of Jesus. Lastly, in verse 21, I want to talk to you about you and your salvation. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Why will she bear a son? Why will you call his name Jesus? 
for he will save his people from their sins. And so as we talk about you and your sin, I'm sorry, you and your, you, yeah, you and your sin and you and your Savior, I want to make sure that we talk about your salvation. Um, I was told a long time ago, and I, I agree with it, uh, to never assume that anyone in your, in your hearing, anyone in your congregation is saved. And that you ought to preach sermons in such a way as at least some point. So here's some inside baseball for you, okay? Here's some inside baseball. There should be kind of a couple different parts to sermon crafting as a whole, okay? Because there are those who are the Lord's sheep who need to be fed. And so you ought to have something for them who are already saved. There's also a possibility of those who have been coming to church for their entire lives and who still don't know the Lord. And so you need a a means for them to accept salvation. And then there is also those who are either new or who have been in the congregation for a very long time who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you need a word of warning for them because they are not yet ready or are or actively against the Savior and his salvation. And so we're trying to hit all those bases this morning. Are, are you picking up on that? So with you and your salvation, maybe you are one of them that are, have been coming for a long time and you're just unsure about your salvation. Or maybe you're one of them who is often like me and you hope you're saved and so every you know, couple months or something, you say that prayer again just to make, I just wanna make sure. I just, I'm just gonna say it again just to make sure that I'm saved because I don't want it to wear off. I don't want the glitter to fade kind of thing. Or maybe you're one of them who are, who, who's here who's unsure about this whole thing and who doesn't even know if you believe this and you kind of scoff at this. Well, the Bible says that you need salvation. And so I want to talk to you about your salvation. And the first thing I want to say is that this is a prophesied salvation. (coughs) What I mean by that is this is how it was supposed to be. The Old Testament is full of illustrations. I'm just going to give you a couple. The first I want to point out is Zechariah 8 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. Prophesied is another terminology for promised, right? Or it's a prediction, a promise. It's a statement that is going to take place sometime in the future. So Zechariah is making it very clear that this salvation is from the Lord. He will save his people. Isaiah 59, 20, in the same vein, and a redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So how are they to be saved by the Lord? They must respond to this saving effect that the Lord is seeking to put out. And then Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, of which... Our big brother Matthew is then hearkening back to and relating that to what happened to that night in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And then after that, as Jesus is a little older, in Luke 4.21, he reads and quotes Isaiah 61.1-2, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
So the first thing I want you to see about you and your salvation is this was promised long before you were ever on the scene. And that matters because God keeps his promises. This prophecy was fulfilled, and we need to also understand that then Jesus himself has made prophecies, and the New Testament writers have made prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. One of those prophecies is what we talked about today. What is our hope for eternal life? Well, that one day he will come to take his bride out of this world, give us new bodies, new heavens, new earth, take away all sorrow, all pain, all suffering, with life eternal for him forever. That was a good place for an amen. That's okay. There's still coffee down there. But that prophecy has yet to be fulfilled, but we can rest assured in that because he already fulfilled this promise of the Christ. Jesus was born. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus was resurrected like he said he would be, like the Father proclaimed him that he would be. And that gives us hope with you and your salvation that if he says, I'm going to finish a good work that I started in you, guess what he's going to do? That if he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then guess what he's going to do? If he says, you can do all things as I strengthen you, then what does that mean for you? So secondly, what you need to see here about this salvation is this is a personal salvation. This is not a salvation that you can just get through osmosis or vicariously through others. It doesn't matter if your grandma founded Allegan Bible Church. If you're not saved, you will be separated from God and from grandma, assuming that grandma was saved. This is a personal salvation. Psalm 68, 20. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, belong deliverance from death. If you don't know this name of Jesus, if you don't claim this personal name, why do you think we have it recorded here? You shall call his name Jesus by name. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He will save his people from their sin. Beloved, this morning Jesus has come for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Have you ever seen have you ever seen one of those um, scenes in a movie or like a cartoon or whatever where um, they find their 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 soulmate i think I think that's a st- stupid term um, but I, I understand where they get that from so they're they're twitter pated by love right and they get like this tunnel vision thing and they can't see anything else that's going on in the world. And, and, and often, I guess Pepe Le Pew is the best version of this. Uh, so if you've been here for long enough, you know where, that I'm three. But anyway, so Pepe Le Pew, right? He sees that beautiful cat. And he just, the love hearts start popping out of his brain. And then he's like floating, you know? He's just floating over to his beautiful 
cat and then dedicates his love to her or whatever. I just want to ask you this morning, is, is your personal relationship with, the, with Jesus ever like that? I mean, we could be real convicting and say it should be like that every day, and that's true. But I just want to, is it ever like that? Do we ever just get tunnel vision on Jesus and on his cross and on his death and burial and resurrection and on the hope that we have that one day for all of eternity we get to run into those nail-pierced, scarred hands as he wraps them around us? I'll probably spend at least a couple thousand years right there. Romans 14, 12 talks about each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, 22, the faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all you who are, who labor and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is a personal savior. And so the last part of this is this is a professed salvation, a personal salvation and a professed salvation. Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this is more than just mental assent. There were years of my life that I had mental assent. I I knew the facts. I could recite the facts. I even kind of believed the facts, but there was no personal profession. There was no personal faith. And it's not just us professing Jesus. It's Jesus professing us. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so I want to ask you again this morning, Making a profession is good, but we ourselves must be professed. Are you seeking Christ in such a way that he will also profess you? He will save his people from their sin. We cannot bring our own salvation from God. God must do it. This prophesied virgin birth baby boy, was really born, really came, really died, so that you, you personally, might have salvation in this Jesus. And you receive that by grace, through faith. Have you professed that? Are you professing that? Will you profess that when the time gets hard? Because one day, everyone will profess At that day, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And I guess the question is, are you going to do that willingly or begrudgingly? And the whole point of this whole thing, if you remember, is don't let Jesus become invisible as we participate and prepare for and celebrate Christmas. So I'm going to end with a hymn. I'm not going to sing but I will read it to you from John Newton, which says this. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear.
It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. By thee my prayers acceptance gain, although with sin defiled. Satan accuses me in vain, and I am owned a child. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart, and could my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Till then, I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath, and may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the only name that saves, the name that will be proclaimed both in heaven and earth and under the earth, and the name by which you saw fit to give your son because he saves his people from their sin. God, help us to preach your name, to teach your name, to believe in your name, to profess, proclaim. Help us to submit and to love the name of Jesus. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.